The will to DIY is one man's Sisyphean task to ask questions of why. Have you ever wanted to look good in a Speedo? No? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, me neither, man. Totally me neither. But I do want to look good naked. So the issue is, why can't I stop eating chips and salsa? And, of course, I'm also always wearing a white shirt when I do it. It's like I'm setting myself up for failure and having to do laundry. And, and also, of course, if I really care about looking good, why did I skip going to the gym for the last year? Oh, and how come I always start arguments with my cat and then get all scratched up? That, that's stupid. And, you know, why did I flip off that cop while drinking a beer in a school zone last week? So dumb. If you have any of these problems, this episode is for you. Part 1 George Ainsley. This guy talks about self-defeating behavior. The point is, you can talk about willpower and will all day, but really, so what? I mean, it's quite easy to point at successful people and say, Do that. Have willpower. Be successful. But really, the issue here is how can we use this amazing thing called will if we don't understand how and why it tends to break down? I mean, a car is amazing, and I may not understand exactly how it works, but usually it gets me from A to B, until it breaks down. And then we lose our job and our life is ruined. So let's skip that. Let's learn a bit about what maintenance is necessary to keep it functional. So to talk about will and willpower, this has really kind of gone out of fashion somewhat, right? Uh, this is not a popular topic nowadays. Mostly now we talk about things like, treat yourself, and you deserve it, Bob. And then you turn into some podcast or somebody like Matthew McConaughey. He drops down to 135 pounds for Dallas Buyers Club, then gets up to 220 pounds for his next movie. And you think, crap, that's some discipline right there. Or some author like Yuval Noah Hari, who meditates for an hour every morning and an hour every evening and writes amazing books. That's also discipline. McConaughey's been journaling for like 35 years, and I can't even get around to writing myself a grocery list before going to the store. I tend to just be like, I'll know what I need when I see it. And so I also tend to walk out with things like pinatas and a Dallas Cowboys jersey, and there's always some beer in the shopping cart. Well, George Ainsley in the 80s, he wrote this book called Breakdown of Will, and we're only really covering part one today because I didn't have enough discipline to finish it while all that beer was sitting around. Uh, but he starts by pointing out the breakdown in psychoanalysis in general, which is quite fun for me, and I've, I've sort of stumbled across it in multiple things that I've read, and I'm going to give a little breakdown of how it works. But let's start with this fantastic quote, Taking Down Freud. Uh, this is by Frederick Cruz. Far from being the man of science he longed and pretended to be, Freud was at bottom a visionary but endlessly calculating artist, engaged in casting himself as a hero of a multi-volume fictional opus that's part epic, part detective story, and part satire on human self-interestedness and animality. Ooh, so, uh, yeah, suck it, Freud. Oh, damn, was that a Freudian slip? <sighs> Freud always wins. So let's sidetrack for just a second to map this out a little bit more. I kind of am thinking of three different kinds of psychoanalysis or therapy and the relationship to will and the relationship to time. The challenge of Freudian psychoanalysis, which we can call the will to pleasure, is if we accept that we're formed from our past, we cannot undo it. And interestingly, there's always more trauma and victimization to be mined. That's a never-ending well to dig. Uh, there becomes this kind of tendency to accept our fate as shaped by our history 
and these malformed desires, meaning that we tend to operate on animal instinct and out of our past or our history. Yet somehow we still have the power to cultivate a disposition that is actually superior to our past, and this allows us to move beyond our pleasures that drive us. This would be something like Adlerian psychology, which we're going to call the will to superiority or the will to power. And this seems to me to focus very much on the present. He would point out that people live through horrible things, yet choose to be happy and not remain victims to their past. You don't have to become stuck in your own story arc. I mean, instead, you can choose right now to exercise your will to power on yourself. Now, equally, sometimes you can just end up in an obviously bad place, like fate can put you there. In this instance, maybe rather than giving into it and just becoming a crappy person, you can consider and manifest the future version of yourself. This is something Viktor Frankl says. He's a Holocaust camp survivor, and he has a psychology that's called logotherapy. It's also known as the will to meaning, where you envision the future to alter your present self. Now, there's this Nietzsche quote that he's quite fond of, and we brought it up in the last episode, and it's especially meaningful here, but the idea is that man can live with any how if he has a why. So there's three forms of therapy, past, present, and future. All these together help us shape our will. There's a will to pleasure, a will to power, and a will to meaning. Now, this will thing, this is a transformative process, and it has a lot of implications in it, but it's quite complicated but we really need to sort of define it. So let's consider, our will is this process of transforming motivations into incentives. Then once incentivized, our choices are turned into actions, and those become our behaviors. Our behaviors are what reflect outwards what our values are, and thus this is how we sort of become who we are. This is the person we are. So to reiterate, our ability right now to override our internal pressures and fight off external temptations is who we are, just as much as our ability to submit and treat yourself is also who we are. Part 2 So I know you're going to find this totally shocking, but throughout the history of man, there have been opposing views on the nature of man. I know, it's totally strange, right? Yeah, I know, wild. From Aquinas to Locke to Hobbes to Rousseau, you know, even guys like Paul in the Bible saying, But what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Yeah, so Freud would love to get a hold of Paul. Uh, But basically, this sort of brings up this classic conflict of who we see ourselves as, who we are. Like, for instance, I might have a presentation tomorrow at 9 a.m., and I know I'm a good, hardworking team player and blah, 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 and I'm driven. Uh, But instead of working on it, I'm really quite busy inhaling some uh, Ben & Jerry's Tonight Dough. Mmm, it's 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, and oh my god, who the hell am I doing this? Wait, what, what happened to my willpower? Jeez, oh god, no, help me. Am I really going back to the freezer for more? God, please, somebody stop me. God, not the Cherry Garcia. No, not the Chucky Monkey. Ah! Yeah, so there's wanting the thing, and then there's being able to judge the reward that it gives you. Right? Which one of these is going to give you the most satisfaction? The Chunky Monkey or working hard the next day and looking good, right? Like, why choose the ice cream now instead of preparing to look glorious tomorrow and maybe getting a promotion that will last you the rest of your life? Ainsley brings up there's two major camps of what we can call this kind of satisfaction model or decision models. And so when people are studying these things, they kind of go into two camps here, the cognitive and the utilitarian. 
Cognitive assumes that you can stand outside of yourself and you can watch the decision-making process. You can basically kind of pull back and you can judge your emotions. But he asks, like, really, what ground are you standing on if you're standing outside of yourself? If our desires, and this is, comes up quite a bit, but if our desires are like an internal marketplace where each desire is placing bids and it's incentivizing us in one direction or the other, well, I mean, from the outside, it's quite easy to say, no more ice cream. But if you also consider this internal marketplace, and it maybe runs kind of like a corporation or a group of people, then we run into all the problems of any kind of workplace or institution where you have multiple factions fighting for their own rewards. Ainsley and Max Weber both remind us that top-down commands don't work pretty much ever, and we're left with these kind of managers, uh, and they, they're really stuck motivating people to work. And often this means they're playing social dynamics and they're like feeding people's self-interest. And it really becomes the underground economies that truly determine what gets done. But you, you're out here standing outside watching. I mean, go ahead, issue your commands. But if you're like any good kind of general or maybe a CEO, you should also only issue commands you know people are already going to follow. In this case, you should probably be saying, ice cream is healthy. I think we need more. So this internal market, if it's all rewards-based, how does it ever shift from these short-term pleasures like ice cream to long-term reasoning? I mean, otherwise we're just animals fulfilling our pleasures, right? Jeez, that's scary. Uh, Utilitarians basically assume that rewards determine your behavior. And typically, your long-term rewards can offer more happiness over time than fulfilling your short-term rewards that have short-term pleasures. So if you screw up and you say you do a whole bunch of heroin, right, the utilitarians might say it's because you had faulty logic. And you didn't know that it would destroy your life, so you took this kind of momentary pleasure and this momentary reward over the bigger reward of living a good life. But then say you go out and do it again the next week. I mean, it's almost like you didn't know that investing in a 401k would be better for you than blowing your money on blow. So this is a huge flaw in the utilitarian reward concept. I mean, you've heard of the marshmallow experiment, right? Uh, where they put this kind of these kids in a room and they put a single marshmallow in front of the kid and they say, don't eat this and I'll come back and give you another one. And then this guy leaves the room and he goes and spies on the kid through a mirror, super creepy. And then all the kid has to do is wait and they get double the reward. Well, some kids can wait and some can't. And then the experimenters extrapolate from the study that those with the ability to delay gratification will be the winners in life. But these are, of course, these very small temporary rewards and they're perishable or, I don't know, maybe marshmallows don't perish, whatever. Uh, but nothing life-changing is happening here, right? So who really cares? The stakes aren't very high. Now, let's take a look at what happens with grown-ups. George. You can either have $500 now, or $1,000 in six months. What do you choose? Oh, uh, 500 now. Okay, next question. I will give you $500 in three months, or $1,000 in nine months. What do you choose? Uh, $1,000 in nine months? George, uh, wait, that doesn't make any sense. If you want the money as soon as possible, like in question one, then that says you value immediacy of the reward more than the dollar. But in question two, you said the dollar was your priority. Explain. Well, uh, 
if I have to wait six months or just, you know, have some money in my pocket now, well, I don't know you, man. Uh, I mean, you might not give me the money in three or six months. You might change your mind or uh, you might go broke or you just dodge me. But if I have to trust you for three months and still have no money in my pocket, I might as well wait nine months and get the full thousand bucks. So this is infinitely more complicated and subtle. There's definitely a math here, but it isn't simply a one-dimensional rewards-based math. Really, we as humans don't know what the future holds. And most of the time, there's not this clear-cut hazard rate for what may or may not happen. So we tend to sort of invoke this survival function. We discount the future for the present. Now, interestingly, the near future might be somewhat predictable, but the far future, say five to ten years from now, I mean, really, who knows? So it really takes an effort of reason to think that way, to think into the future like that. Yet this kind of logical assumption is that values will stay constant over time. And you can refer to this as an exponential curve. And values increase or decrease at a steady rate over time. But when we introduce uncertainty and these kind of possible fluctuations, well then humans tend to act irrationally. We can choose $500 now instead of $1,000 in six months because we don't know. We can eat the marshmallow ice cream now rather than looking good in six months. This is a breakdown of logic as much as it's a breakdown of will. And it happens repeatedly in many experiments with humans. So Ainsley shows that as humans we tend to often pick, almost always pick, the immediate poorer reward. Uh, the nearer in time the reward is to being fulfilled, the larger or more important it seems in your mind. Even though you know logically that you should avoid that chunky monkey or that, you know, $1,000 is obviously more than 500 you still choose the immediate reward. And the bigger question is why? Why is our will breaking down in this way? And is this actually a breakdown of will? Or as Aristotle named it, acrasia? Is this self-defeating behavior in action right now? Well, Aristotle mentions that it may be no good for a person to have a rational belief if appetite is what leads him on. In other words, if your ability to reason exists to serve you up the rewards of your desires, then reason exists to achieve rewards, not to create rewards. And this is something we seem to get backwards all the time. We feel what we want, and then we reason towards it. Reason doesn't start our desires, it fulfills them. This brings in this kind of pleasure principle, the will to pleasure, the Freudian thing, right? Uh, this pleasure cannot be denied, it can only be delayed. And this kind of syncs a bit with what we also talked about last episode. Schopenhauer saying, man can do as he wills, but man cannot will what he wills. This really forces us to consider if we cannot control our pleasure or what we will, are we somehow predetermined to continue down on the same path? always at some point falling back into our pleasures and pains? But perhaps reason can have some force, if it has enough motivation. This is almost like a physics for the mind, and I'm going to paraphrase Spinoza here, but to displace or restrain one appetite or effect, it must be displaced by a stronger effect. To move something, you need a stronger force. That's just basic, right? So the real issue is, if you're having a breakdown of will, what the hell are your priorities? If we're driven by desire and reason is taking a supporting role, you in essence have to weaponize your passions. Your appetites must be stronger, larger, better appetites that can motivate you to displace smaller rewards, to stem the urges of the momentary rewards. Once again, if you think of yourself as a market of competing desires inside yourself, but your body can only do one action, 
Well, reason tends to be talking to you quite dispassionately, right? While passion is screaming at you, and your actions are determined by which one of these wins. And the problem is, like as silly primates, loudness gets our attention much easier. And whatever gets our attention, well, that wins. Ainsley talks about rewards like their perspective. Uh, So, for instance, you can look down a street, and you know that the building at the end is bigger than the one right in front of you. Well, how do you know this? Well, through experience, perspective makes size relative to distance. But for some reason, we don't seem to learn that with rewards. And oddly, to our mammalian brain, right, a reward is just a reward. It's all a treat. It's only our reason that lets us know that the current reward of something like Ben and Jerry's Americone Dream is not going to reward us when we're on the beach in six months. So to combat this internal market of desires... We have to develop complicated reason procedures to outwit our evil other self that wants ice cream now. Such as we can freeze our car keys into the ice and then have to walk six miles to the ice cream store and maybe then burn off the calories. Yeah, it's a bit complicated. A classic example, though, is Odysseus and the Sirens. Oh, I want to go home to my wife more than anything. But uh, first, let's uh, swing by those tempting sirens over there so I can get a good listen. Oh, of course, no, I know they would drive any man crazy with temptation. Do you think I'm an idiot? No, but I planned for this. You morons will not be allowed to listen, only me. And you're going to tie me to the mast and stuff your ears so you can't hear me persuading you blabbering fools to let me go. Yes, that's right. I'm a genius. Ah, you're a twit. <laughs> and I'll be the only man alive to survive the siren song. And you will be lucky to say you know me. Oh, now let's get back to rowing. Um, uh, you row while I stand here looking good and composing poetry to myself. So Odysseus, he has a conflict. He has this long-term reward of going home, and yet this very selfish desire to hear the sirens and to feed his ego. He knows if he hears those sirens... He's going to want to go to them more than to return home to his wife, right? So he plans around his future self's desires. He predicts his failure or this breakdown of will, and he devises an elaborate plan around it. Part 3. So basically, we can, with some foresight, plan around our pleasures to achieve our goals. But we're not always so clear-sighted. Let's take a much closer look at how our minds process rewards. Ainsley talks about reward and this time value discounting in terms of hyperbolic discounting versus exponential discounting. He has these great graphs to prove it. They look fantastic. For instance, he talks about a banker who can think 20 years into the future. He acts very rationally on this exponential curve. And this kind of person will take advantage of a person on a hyperbolic or a much steeper curve who will not be saving for months and months in advance. And then whenever they have this desire, they end up paying much more to fulfill their desire whenever that desire arrives. So the banker is exponential, he's logical, and he's boring. The fly-by-your-seat-of-the-pants hippie, uh, this person is hyperbolic, they're irrational, and they're probably stinky, but they're so much more fun to be around. And most of us tend to be a little more hyperbolic and not so much bankers. Now, this might seem like a failure, 
I mean, what is it that programs humans to want short-term rewards over the long-term rewards whenever it's actually harmful to our species, right? Evolutionarily, why have animals not weeded out this instinct? Come on, nature, do your job so I don't need my willpower and self-control. <laughs> it's all so exhausting. Uh, so thinking of ha- uh, these animals and humans, other behaviors that are good for long-term rewards, such as sleeping, hoarding food, mating... These have all been evolved by nature to offer these very short-term rewards of pleasure to ensure the long-term reward of the survival of the species. Oh, and by the way, small distinction here, pleasure isn't actually the same as reward. A pleasure is a desire fulfillment, but a reward is any repeated behavior, even if that is painful. So yes, this ranges from things like cutting yourself to gossiping or procrastinating or even popping zits because at some point our attention gets tugged, and we pop that sucker. Even though we knew we had prom coming up, and then you go, oh God, maybe it's COVID and I can wear a mask, and uh, whatever. Uh, We rationalize our way back out of it. But back to rewards as a survival instinct. They don't have to be pleasurable. The anger a mother bear has to defend her cubs is neither pleasure nor really for her own reward, but it's for the continuation of the species. This instinct can be hijacked by humans, for instance, the drill sergeant, and this becomes neither good for the individual or the species. And let's think about women who used to have a 15% chance of death from childbearing, but they did it anyway, and then they spent the rest of their life taking care of their children. Was this good for them? Well, it's their choice, but are there societal pressures that are pushing this? Is this some sort of conditioning that pushes people to behave this way? What about things like reputational honor or social acceptance? Or is all this conditioning stuff just rubbish? And the only way we really do anything is because we're pulled by instincts and rewards. So, give us more examples about humanity, you say? Well, alright. We hoard things we don't need, we sleep during the day, we have sex without procreation, and we gain the pleasures once reserved for a mate from things like fiction and fantasy. We have, basically through social and cultural means, altered how these impulses, these instincts, are fulfilled. But they're still present within us. So now let's go back to this internal marketplace where all these instincts and desires are showing from, this kind of war that's going on inside of us for rewards. It's really like having a whole population that's screaming in your head, and these are all noisy roommates wanting different things. And unfortunately, just denying yourself these little short-term rewards and only saying... I'm going to follow long-term rewards and no to everything else. This doesn't actually mean that these long-term rewards are not somehow hyperbolic and self-defeating. I mean, sometimes those can be the most sly and dangerous rewards. The Napoleonic strength games that make you fragile. I will say no to everything until I'm in power. Right? Uh, Remember these kind of compensations that you tend to develop and to survive as a child. These also become your dysfunctions as an adult. The very thing that saved you when you were young ends up destroying you. So we have to keep all this in mind. Thanks, writer. This is super complicated. First you say weaponize your desires, uh, and then you say make complicated schemes around your future self's lack of willpower, and now you're saying it's all instinct? And that we can't even trust our long-term rewards from not being self-defeating? Ah, uh, just tell me, how do I exercise my will and cease this self-defeating behavior? Well, honestly, I don't know. But at least in reading part one of this book, Ainsley has mapped out some tools for us to recognize what's really going on. So for instance, when your tire wobbles, 
pull over and take a look before it falls off. At least now we have an inkling of what's going on. The point of this podcast is really to better understand how will works within the realm of rewards. Short-term rewards loom large and desirable, even though they're actually small, and they block our view of these long-term rewards that we have always planned to follow. Another analogy Ainsley shares is the picture of the normal chain of predation. And this is basically where a small fish is eaten by a larger fish, or is in turn eaten by a much larger fish. But with rewards, he says it functions in reverse, where the small fish eats the larger fish until we never get to the really big fish. We never get to the grand long-term reward. We spend all of our time scratching our current itch, chasing the minnows, and we lose sight of the goal, the great white whale. Wait, that's not a fish. Damn it. Uh, that was a dick reference. Oh, God, Freudian. Uh, the book. No, Moby Dick. Not the... Oh, jeez. What a horrible idea. Captain Ahab was an asshole anyway. Maybe it's a salmon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe the goal is a nice halibut or something. I don't... I don't really know fish. I grew up in the desert. Thanks for having enough willpower to stick with me on this one. If you haven't subscribed, please disable your willpower and your long-term rewards for just a minute and subscribe... Or you can also make a $3 donation to help me balance out the costs of running the show. Next time, we're going to talk about the problems with meritocracy and how it promises hope, but mostly it just expands inequality and increases resentment.